Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 22nd, 2020. This is episode 2645 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a, a good friend on the line. I've, I've met Roger Rodriguez quite a few times. He's been here to my place. Uh, he uh, definitely helped out on some levels with Perma Ethos when we were doing that. Um, he's just a really good guy. He's from uh, Central Texas, or at least that's where he's living now. And he's working uh, with a, a, a guy that's pretty well known to a lot of the TSP audience that's been here to workshops, especially earlier day workshops, uh, Casey Callen. Um, they're working together, and they've built a, a farm called Bountiful Acres. You can find it at bountifulacres.net down in Central Texas near Austin. And uh, they do ducks, they do chickens, they do rabbits, and they do some other things. They're starting to do some pastured pork now. It's about a 20-acre facility. Uh, they farm some of it themselves. They lease some of it out to other people. And they've come up with a pretty good innovative model to be able to monetize the property. And they've got an interesting partnership where Casey is really kind of the the monetary brains, record-keeping, business-centric guy. And that's guy. That's who Casey is. Casey comes from a background very uh, much like that. Roger being a very hands-on guy as he got out on the farm, running the farm on a daily basis. And they've even set up, the, you'll hear the structuring a little bit more in detail, but where uh, one entity owns the land and the other entity owns the farm as far as the active part that actually raises the animals and manages facilities. And one leases to the other. This is a bit of asset protection and tax management 101 type of thing going on. It's pretty good stuff. And again, we'll be talking about that. We'll talk about how they raise their animals, how they raise their chickens, how they raise their ducks, how they raise their rabbits, how they market and sell them. Uh, but the most interesting part of this to me is that they built a facility, an on-site processing facility that they have a permit from the state of Texas where they can do 10,000 animals on farm per year, which way exceeds the number that they need to do. Uh, they made a hefty investment in it as well. It's a, it's a beautiful facility, though. Uh, really, they went kind of top-end with the equipment. You can find it on their website. And then they've taken that, and let's go to another level. So now they're able to say, hey, if you want to process your birds, since we can only process our own animals on site, we can't process your animals for you. We can't have you bring them in, drop them off, and process them for you. We certainly can't process them for you so that you can go out and, uh, and sell them, So because there's a lot of regulation in the way of that. But if you would like to lease our facility, you can come in, lease it for a day, half a day, whatever, and you can process your own animals in our facility. Oh, by the way, if you'd like to hire one of us as help, well, you can hire us as help, and we'll help you do your own processing, and that's totally kosher and legal as well. And they've tried to set this up to where that anybody that wants to emulate this and do this in their own area um, can do it as well. They've had families come in and process animals. They've had 4-H groups come in and process animals, and it's really cool, and it, it leads up to our, our, our quote of the day. I've become really fond of doing these quotes of the day. Um, I'm not a huge Tony Robbins fan because it is so much of the rah-rah, you can do it, break a board. You, you know, uh, It makes me think of the uh, Geico commercial where Pinocchio is a motivational speaker. And he's like, 
you can do it. And his nose grows. And, he, and you can do it. His nose grows a little more. And all the people in the audience are like, oh. Like, I, I get a little bit of that vibe with Tony Robbins. On the other hand, I think he's actually helped a lot of people. But regardless of what you think of Tony Robbins, I, I, I love this quote because I think it's just so true. There's always a way if you're committed. I, I completely agree with that, man. I, I really do. Like, there is always a way if you're committed. Because it goes back to one of my other favorite quotes by Jeff Lawton, that the more restrictions upon a design, the more eloquent the design, if the designer is good at his craft. So you can put someone that's a good permaculture designer into a property that has lots of restrictions of what you can do with it, and they'll come up with a very eloquent design. In fact, sometimes the more restrictions, the more eloquent, the more functional the design. Because the more restrictions placed upon you, the more creative you have to be, the more you have to think. I think this is why, in some instances, when we look at um, small land production, it's where it really blows us away. If you look at something like uh, the backyard described in the book, um, Paradise Lot, by um, Eric Tossenmeyer and Jonathan, can't think of the other guy's name. It sucks when you're not the lead author, I guess. Um, but they took this duplex with this really small backyard. They bought the whole duplex. They lived in one side while they fixed up the other. Took the fence down in between and made this long, narrow, small yard even with two of them going together. If you've ever seen a duplex in the northeast in a backyard, you know it. it's a small footprint. But they put in a little greenhouse. They put a little pond in the greenhouse. They put little chickens in. And all. And when you look at what they've built in this little area, you're like, oh, my God. How does so much come from so little? Well, that is designing within the restrictions. So when we get Roger on, what he'll talk about is some of the restrictions that were placed on by the state uh, and the government apparatus, which on a scale of permanence is just below that of a mountain. The scale of permanence is how hard is this thing that's in my way to change? And if it's a, you know, if it's you have a little lump in your backyard, well, it's pretty low on the scale of permanence. We can go out there with a shovel and a wheelbarrow and make that little lump go away. You know, if it's a if it's a if something on a neighbor's property like a tree shading an area that I wish had more sun, it's not my tree. It's pretty hard to change that without the cooperation of the neighbor who maybe doesn't want to give up his tree. But if we're talking about the fact that that mountain over there is kind of in the way, well, that mountain's not going anywhere, and so that's a true restriction. Well, government regulations can be changed, but they're just beneath the mountain on the scale of permanence, and that's a real thing. That's a real thing, scale, and that's, that is where regulations are. It's just below the mountain. So if we're not going to change the regulation, then we need to design around the regulation. Or we need to figure out, well, what does the regulation really say we can do, and what does it really say we can't do? And then we just, you know, kind of do those things. We, so what, what happens, I think, is people in their good-natured attitude – uh, even if they don't like the state or the state's restrictions, we generally have this good-natured attitude. So we see the intent of the restriction. The restriction is to prevent these things from occurring. So that means I can't do these things. No, 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 no. To quote another friend, uh, uh, not friend, and another well-known character from pop culture, Chandler Bing from Friends. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> right? Um, no. The, the restrictions restrict what they say they restrict, and they. Don't restrict what they don't say they restrict. So as long as we can figure a way around those restrictions out, there's always a way if you're committed. And that's that's kind of what I want you to take away from this whole show today. You have, you know, two guys that knew nothing about farming, 
at all. Um, they, they got involved with Perma Ethos. They got involved with some of the workshops here. They learned some things. They started out, I believe that Roger really started out growing microgreens and, and that, like at least learning the, the, the concept of marketing a product. And they met here a couple times. They decided they had good synchronicity with each other, good chemistry. Um, and one had more financial uh, ability than the other, and one had more time than the other. And they worked together, and they built this farm into a going concern in only a few years. And as you'll hear today, not only have they done that, it's getting better And it's, it's, you know, despite a lot of mistakes, I won't, you'll hear him talk about like killing a bunch of chickens in the beginning. And that hurts when you have money in them and you were hoping for money to come out the other side. You know, it really does. But he's, you know, learned his craft and there's always a way if you're committed. So we'll have Roger on in just a second. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Butcher Box. You know, if you don't happen to have somebody like Roger down the road from you that you can get pastured poultry from, pastured pork from, grass-fed beef from, uh, you can get it from ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a great source, and a lot of you guys that signed up for ButcherBox last year, I've gotten so many thank you letters from you guys, basically saying thank you so much. Not only is the quality great, but during this freaking COVID nightmare, uh, the fact that I was just able to increase the volume in my box made shopping really easy. Uh, keeping fresh meat coming into the home and top quality meat at that at a fair price. Um, right now, I still believe that ButcherBox is putting people on a waiting list because they're taking care of their existing customers first. But um, they've been a great sponsor, and they are the only sponsor that I take product as payment from. I get a box of meat every month uh, as payment for ButcherBox. And I will tell you that the box of meat is actually two boxes last month. It'll be two boxes this month because I added a lot to my account because, just like you, I don't want to go out and shop any more than I have to. And uh, right now, it's really paid big dividends. So if you... Uh, If you want to become a ButcherBox customer and you're not one already, you might want to get on that waiting list. So when they open back up, uh, you're in line because I think that line is getting pretty long. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Man, this was such an easy sponsor to say yes to because I'm selective of my sponsors. If you're new to the show, you don't just get to be a sponsor. And, and I don't say that as just marketing. I, I really have to believe in a company and their product and their offering to take them as a sponsor. I don't charge anywhere near as much as I should for sponsorship. Uh, my average sponsor has been with me for over seven years. When Backwoods Home said they wanted to sponsor me, I was like, sure. And the reason is I first discovered Backwoods Home Magazine in 1993, right after I got out of the Army and I first moved to Texas. I used to walk to this little bookstore, uh, not a little bookstore, there's a big bookstore, Barnes and Noble, Noble, back when those were a big-time thing, right? It was about a half mile from the place I was living. And I would walk down there while I was looking for a job and read the newspapers and all. And I'd buy a coffee so I didn't feel like a complete bum because using, basically using it as a library. And... Um, I found this magazine, and it was like one of the few things that I would actually buy and leave the store with, and I would read it cover to cover. And when I got you know, a decent job and all, it became the first magazine as an adult I ever subscribed to. And we're going from 1993 to 2020, and I'm still a subscriber. So you can bet I recommend Backwoods Home. You can find them at backwoodshome.com. All right, with that, let's go ahead and bring our special guest on. With that, hey, Roger, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate you letting me be a guest on your show. Hey, I'm glad to have you on today. We're going to be talking about something I think it's really cool. You guys set up at your place called Bountiful Acres, a small animal processing facility, and that's what I got you on to talk about today. Before we get into that, though, just tell people a little bit about your background. Like, who, who is Roger, and, and how, did, how did that lead you to get into this whole world of, like, permaculture and livestock and all this other stuff? 
Okay. Um, we'll, real quick, I am a father of two adult children. My son, Robert, lives in Hawaii, living his best life. My daughter, Victoria, lives on the property with us, and she has two grandchildren. So she has two children, and I have two grandchildren. And I grew up in a military family. We moved around a lot. My father was in the Air Force, so we got to live overseas and travel. And then later in life, I joined the Marine Corps and was a Marine infantryman. After that, I did a little bit in real estate, bought and sold some homes, and remodeled a few. I was fortunate enough in May of 2014 to go out to your workshop at your place, Jack, and meet just a bunch of great people, which then propelled me to go out to West Virginia and even meet even more great people at Perma Ethos. That's where I met Casey. He had the opportunity to purchase the property that we're working on now. So he owns everything, and he manages it, and his strong suit is doing paperwork and all of the accounting. And I lean towards the labor part. I manage the property. I'm kind of the caretaker, uh, the steward of the farm. And that's kind of the backstory on Bountiful Acres and how we got started. So um, when you did this, what made you – what exactly is Bountiful Acres? Before we talk about just the, specifically the processing facility, like what, what okay. is Bountiful Acres as a whole? Bountiful Acres is a small animal ranch where we raise chickens, ducks, rabbits, and now a few pigs on the property. Um, and we just – basically we provide meat and eggs to people who want to know where their food comes from. So our system is that we raise these animals, and the state of Texas allowed us to apply for a permit, an exemption, to process up to 10,000 of only our own animals raised here on the farm. So that's what we do differently. So were there, like then, were there obstacles to setting up this facility? Only a mountain of them. Okay, so, let's talk about some of them then. <laughs> so... Uh, the state itself doesn't provide that many obstacles. It provides you uh, an application, and it's pretty straightforward. The obstacles are come in the business world trying to find someone who is going to step outside of the normal mold to build something that they've never seen before. Not too many contractors were willing to build a chicken processing small animal facility. They just didn't have it in their history. So they shied away from it. Finally, we found someone to work with us and build this custom design facility. Casey put pen to paper and we uh, had a few consultants come out and give us some advice. And so we built from the ground up this facility. Now, one of the major obstacles was this uh, facility provides, produces a substantial amount of wastewater and we're out in the country, so our option was to irrigate our land with it. Well, the septic people were just throwing their arms up in the air and hmm. saying, that's just not possible. So I had to connect with the actual Texas Agricultural Department head and have him get in touch with personally a septic engineer so that he could, in fact, believe that it was possible to irrigate your fields. So... <laughs> um, 
so that was just one of the obstacles. And then designing an irrigation pump to handle uh, some solids and distribute that amongst out on the property in a clean manner. But but it sounds like for once, like the bureaucrat was actually useful in removing the roadblock. Like the contractor was the one that didn't think he could do something, and a bureaucrat actually helped. In that manner, yeah, he uh, he stepped out of the way and said, well, "We're not going to tell you exactly how to do it. We're just going to come and inspect you when you're done." So that was the real risky part. I got you. For instance, what what do you put on the surface of the walls? Are you can't use sheetrock? Are you, you going to use stainless steel? You know, that's a lot of money to do that. So we went with a, a laminate plastic that is cleanable. You see it in a lot of commercial restrooms. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, you My were saying point. you were saying. Um, so, as far as. Um, The walls, they, they don't give you a lot of guidance. They just say, build it, and then we'll inspect it. And if there's any problems, then you have to rebuild it. So that was a little bit daunting. Yeah, but like you were saying, you use some sort of laminate that's used in a lot of restaurants. And it seems like, you know, if you got to guess, look at a commercially approved kitchen, and then right. if you go there, you should be okay, maybe. And that's exactly what I did. I, I went out to Cobb Creek Farms. They were a huge help. Um, and they allowed me to go and tour their facility. So I got to see some places in action. And so um, you're using this for your own product. So let's talk about your own product. And I know you're leasing it out as well. We'll get to that in a second. Let's talk more about the product than the facility for a second. Who buys sure. the majority of your products and what is the, the majority of what you sell? Chicken is by far our largest, biggest product, um, and we do maybe a few hundred chickens a month only. We're not that large. I'm not able to produce that many chickens to begin with. And the majority of the people that I sell to are the people who live here and go to the farmer's markets in Leander. I also work with a restaurant, Farm to Fork. They purchase about 20 whole chickens a month. And at one time, I was able to uh, work with Marriott in downtown Austin, but we hit a, a major kill-off, so we'll get to that later. Okay. But just as challenges that come up. So we work with restaurants. We work with people who come by the farm who just live down the street and say, hey, what are you guys up to? So, so how has COVID affected you guys? I mean, that probably kills any restaurant business right there, but, I mean, has it actually made local business stronger? We have never been busier, Jack. Okay. That the farmers market, it's, uh, the state of Texas is deemed that obviously a necessity. You've got to buy food and what healthier way to do it than outside where you're not confined in space. So, you know, we're adhering to all the social distancing requirements, but people are showing up in droves and I'm sold out. I'm pre-ordering chicken for next month for people who want to reserve their chicken. Uh, that's great. And I, I've kind of suspected that this might be not just a short-term bump, but like a long-term uh, enhancement of this type of a, of a market because people who just didn't see the value 
in buying local, I think maybe will now more than before. Now, I don't think we're going to turn into, you know, Joel Salat and Utopia Land USA yeah. you know, because of this. But I, I do think, like, right now, if I went down the street and talked to the people in the big housing developments just a few miles from me, had I gone there, like, six months ago and talked to the Karens and the Kyles that live there and said, hey... We're a small farm. We do duck eggs. We do live ducks. We do this. We do that. We, you know, we do hydroponics. We do all these things. And I'm interested in putting a CSA together. I think the vast majority of people would have slammed the door in my face, especially when they heard that the price was more than Publix or, you know, Albertsons. Definitely. I think Definitely. when this is over, if I went down there and did the same thing, probably one in ten or two in ten would probably be like, hey, you know, tell me more. I'm interested. And that's a big change in a marketplace for people. Absolutely. I'm working real hard to connect with the new people that come out to the farmer's market, trying to get their information and invite them out to the ranch. I mean, we're, we have an open house policy. You're never going to get to go to a big chicken production facility ever. And here we welcome you to come out. We say, hey, it's a working farm, so bring appropriate footwear, but let's show you how the chickens work. And this is really what a meat bird looks like. And this is how it operates and so you guys also have set this up so that people can lease access to your facility can you tell us a little bit about that who can do that is anybody doing it how does it work what have you sure one of the most important limitations that bountiful acres has is that as a company we are not permitted to process your chicken Casey was wise enough to establish this from the beginning, and the he has a company called Food is Freedom. That's the name of his company, and they own the property and they own the facility. Bountiful Acres is a separate entity, and Bountiful Acres then leases this building to process their their animals. Now, it is available for people to come in who have their own chickens, And be like, hey, I've got a backyard flock that I want to have know where my meat is from and know that it's healthy. I'd like to use your facility. And we have certainly had several uh, ag families, 4-H families that raise chickens, bring them out here, and I show them, and I kind of give them a little tutorial, and they get to involve themselves in as little or as much as they want. That's interesting. It also makes me wonder if there's a loophole here. So let's say that that I'm Jack and, and I have a, a neighbor named Bobby and, and I want to come process my chickens. And what I do is I bring Bobby with me as a helper and I pay Bobby to help me. Is that right. okay? Sure. So could I, I hire, could I, could I bring my own chickens to process and hire Roger to help me? You certainly can. And the caveat <laughs> is that those are, Those are your chickens, though. You're, yeah. you're not able to sell them. Now, there have been some cottage law changes in Texas recently, and honestly, I'm not all up to date because we have our permit. So yeah. we're covered. But let's say you want to get, you want to take advantage of this demand, and you do indeed have chickens. Come to us. We'll help you get your own permit to mm -hmm. process your own chickens with your own label that you can then indeed legally sell. We've already done all the groundwork. All you need to do is Follow on the steps, get your own permit, and there you are. There's no shortage of people selling uh, chicken at the farmer's market. 
That's that's good to hear. I think yeah. like so the other loophole I'm the other loophole I'm seeing is like let's say Bobby lives down the road for me and, and Bobby wants twenty five of my chickens, so I can sell Bobby the chickens alive, and then Bobby can take the chickens to Roger's facility, right? Because they're his chickens now. I haven't right. you haven't processed them for me, and then I sold them to Bobby. I sold Bobby living birds, and Bobby right. transported right. them to. It's like so there's a lot of ways around this and. A facility like yours opens up a lot of doors. I, you know, personally, I'm not going to invest in all of the stuff to do this at a significant level. I just, I don't want to. If I could run a couple hundred birds a year and there was a place for them to go and be taken care of, and I could set it up to where that's what I, I only did that one part. You know, I, I, I might do that because I have enough space to do that, and you know. They, I don't want to be a farmer for a living. I'm a little different than I think a lot of people, but I, I like to, I like putting through a run in ten weeks, and I like the fact that at the end of those ten weeks they go away. <laughs> so I think there's like a lot Absolutely. of little loopholes that you can start to see uh, if people build a facility like this and the way they can market it. Because that's like if you build it for yourself, that's one thing, but if you can build it and lease it, now it's making money even when you're not using it. That was Callan's. Uh, hope was for him to build something that young farmers can use to their advantage to leverage what they've done and stretch their own legs and build their own farms. And so he, he wants to build a model that people can kind of replicate. That's very cool. And, and like, how big is your place? How big is the farm itself? The property sits on about 20 acres. Okay. The The back 10 acres we lease out to uh, Longhorns okay. for uh, ag exemption. And we're just now starting to lease out a smaller section for a guy who wants to do some uh, veg farming. And so we're going to kind of branch out in that. But the front 10 acres is where the facility sits on. And we're only using maybe three acres for animal production realistically and i'm guessing with the chickens you guys are doing like a tractor model actually we're doing it completely different okay cool. Um, talk about we, that so what we operate is a day range system i guess is the closest you could come to it so imagine if you will a tough shed in a suburban backyard size facility and In the morning, I let them out, and they go, and they have a, a fenced-off area that they eat and drink out of, and then at night, I push them back into the shed, and I rotate a different section of the paddock every week or two. Okay, so you so use like a wagon wheel area. pattern. You use like a wagon wheel exactly. pattern. Okay. Exactly. So what I've opted to do is, rather than use my labor to move a chicken tractor once a day, maybe twice a day, I have decided to use that effort to scrape clean the tough shed and put fresh hay maybe once a week in the summertime when there's a lot of daylight and they're out most of the time. In the wintertime, it's maybe twice a week. It really depends, but it's an exchange for labor, and I prefer to have a a structure that is immobile and can't be affected by weather. I, when we first started this, we had several um, high winds that just came and, and tore down what we had already set up, and that's when we decided to shift gears and 
invest in a, a more substantial structure like a tough shed. Very cool. And like so per run, like how many birds are you guys doing per run? Maybe 200 to 300 at a time. Okay. We have we have a Cornish cross and we order day old chicks from either Ideal Poultry or Metzer Farms and um I have a small brooder where they stay in there for a week or two, and then they go directly into the tough shed, and they stay inside the shed for another two weeks. And then I slowly let them out into a small area, and as they feather out, they get a bigger area, and they stay out for longer periods. So you're kind of doing a conventional brooding for a couple weeks, and then like a modified brooding for a couple weeks, and then we expand the area of freedom as the birds right. are better able. And what are you what are you seeing on a uh, a rotation per cycle? Like how long is it taking you to go from brooder to processed birds? And kind of what what size birds are you ending up with on average at that point? So just recently we've been able to tighten some screws and improve the method. Um, we're down to about 10 weeks from beginning to finish. Okay. Uh The the first couple of years we had some serious losses. We I as you know I'm from a military family. I moved around a lot. I'm not a farmer from a farmer family, so this was all new to me. So it was trial and error, and we lost a lot of birds. Hmm. We tried some of those uh, chicken nipple waterers. Yeah, and. I had at first I had too many for the chickens and they all would just play with the nipple waterers and drown themselves or get themselves wet and then pack themselves into a corner and freeze them. Uh, so <laughs> it was it was uh, huge. I mean I I tried raising them in like you see a tractor supply with the barrels that didn't work. So I ended up building my own kind of brooder that's on a screen, kind of like you did with your ducks where they could get up in water and things would fall through. Yeah way back when, kind of like that. So they're in there for a few weeks, and it really depends on the weather. I mean, in the wintertime, I try not to raise so many young birds mm -hmm. because there's such, you know, it's not as though we get a real winter down here, but we're not equipped for it either. So things get, you have to put lights out. You have to put a lot more work into them. So they stay in the brooder longer in the wintertime. But in the summertime, I mean, they're barely in the brooder for maybe a week before they go out into the shed because I don't need to worry about temperature so much. In, in the summers, uh, as the birds mature, do you have any issues with heat? I mean, it is Texas and, and what have you. Or uh, the very fact that they're not in tractors and are able to move around probably helps a lot with that. It does help. We do have some shade and some trees. Okay. And um, as long as you provide a constant clean source of water, they do okay. Um, uh, when we first started, one list, long list of many mistakes, I was trying to provide them a lot of water and using those blue kiddie pools. Well, chickens would get in there, they'd drown, they'd poop in the water, they would drink that bad water, and they would not thrive. So... I've gone away from completely from that, and I just use a float valve on like a dog bowl kind of dish, and I use a, a big barrel of water, and it just gravity feeds that, and that's been my success, most successful method of watering. That way they never run out, but they can't really get in the water and muck it up. 
And if they do, it's not very much or for very long. Yeah. As opposed to those pools, those tubs just didn't work, period. Yeah, I can understand that. You can't, there's certain ways you can't treat ducks and chickens the same way, and that's definitely one of them. So one of your other products is rabbits. Can you, like, how are you, are you doing those in hutches or, or what have you? And are you doing a lot of them, or is it just kind of a secondary item or what have you? So rabbits are pretty seasonal because during the summer they don't breed very well. Mm. Um, and there's not a huge demand for rabbit, but it's, we're permitted to, to do them. They're not very difficult. So I bought a few, uh, what's called a Tamic rabbit, Texas A&M University, Kingsville mm-hmm. rabbit, uh, and a couple of Californians and I, and I do my best to breed them during the best parts of the year. And, uh, we do sell a few a week at the farmer's markets. Restaurants haven't really picked it up, but, um, we'll see. It's a regular. You know, it seems like it's one of those things that Americans just aren't hip on, and but everybody you ever get to try it loves it. You know, it's like oh, yeah. it, you just got to get them to do it once, and then they're like, oh, rabbits are great. But there's like we have this weird thing that they're cute little bunnies or something, or we just – it's not a big thing. Like France, rabbits are huge. It's like it, 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 yeah. it's up there with chicken for, you know, how much is consumed. But we just don't get it, I guess. I guess we don't. But – um I think it'll grow on us, and we're going to continue to provide it. We also do ducks. We do uh, some Pekin, those big white ducks that mm-hmm. they're come out in 81 days, and they're a bear to pluck. That's really tough. You got to spend a lot of time on them. But again, it's not a common item at the market, and that's kind of what we do. You know, the thing about that is it might not be common and you don't sell a huge amount, but, boy, you get all the business there is for them because you're the only one doing it. You know? There's uh, only one or two places that are doing it, and those you either love and your price point's not a not an issue because you can't get it anywhere else, yep. or you've never had it before and you're, you're going to turn your nose up at it. And that's fine. We have chicken, and now we have pork as well. Okay. On the ducks, like, are you guys scalding at, like, a higher temperature or whatever? Because that's what got me was, like, running even a duck through pluckers. It's just, it's so much trouble. But I've heard if you up the scalding temperature that it gets a lot easier. It does. I've done a couple of different things. First, I try to do a pre-soak. Before I even put it in the dunker, I make sure I break the water tension and all those feathers. So I, I use a really hot water spray to kind of get it ready to be dunked and then I scald it and then I'll pluck it and then I might dunk it back in again to get some of the smaller feathers but it's really more about timing the duck in between pin feathers coming out and molting and the full-fledged feathers coming in so I think uh, through personal experience having done small ducks and old ducks last time I did them 82 days was the sweet spot. Yeah, they kind of toughen up a lot after that, not just the meat quality, but the the feathers of being able to remove them. It seems like there is a point that once they go beyond it, and you see it with a lot of things. I've even seen it with quail. Like if you process quail at like six or seven weeks, you can totally do everything without even a tool. You can just pop the breast out like a dove. Well, 
decapitate, right. decapitate first, be, be merciful, and then you can just pull the legs out, snap the feet off, and you're done. Um, when you're calling, you know, twelve month old birds that you're replacing as layers, it, it it's you can do it, but it's you know shears are very helpful. So I think that there is like a a point with most animals for processing where they're at like a sweet spot where it's the easiest and. Like you're saying, around 80, 82 days for ducks. And that's also kind of convenient with them because I think it's kind of when they get to a point where if I feed these birds for another three weeks, they'll get a little bigger, but I'm, I'm now losing money. My cost of feed going in is never going to come back in protein going out. Definitely not. So I don't know if you want to, if you're okay doing this, or I know Casey handles kind of the money side, but can you kind of give people like a ballpark of what did it cost to set up this facility? Um, I would probably say somewhere in the $80,000 range. Okay. Somewhere in there, probably a little bit more after you put the AC in and we had to run electrical. Okay. Uh, quite a, quite a, we had a pretty far electrical run. So there were some other expenses that came in. Um, and that includes, you know, the whole scalder, the cone, the, the knives, I mean, we have a scale that prints and a vacuum packer, vacuum sealer. Yeah, and I think people, when they hear that number, should take some heart in the quality. I'm, I'm on your site right now looking at the facility. You guys went top end. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what that type of vacuum sealer costs, but I know it's several thousand bucks just for the vacuum sealer alone because that's not we- – that's not like my Cabela's one that's like a $300, $400 sealer. That's one of those ones that when things are wet, it does it. It's like a cryovac sealer. They're, they're pricey. It's commercial. It, yeah. It's commercial. It's large enough to do turkeys. Um, you can do the large ducks in there. I vacuum sealed two or three packages at a time. So it, it was worth it. And it makes a difference. Most, uh, most smaller scale production facilities use the, bags that dunk and then you tie them off at the top and they're per- those are perfectly fine there's nothing wrong with that but it looks a bit different when it comes with a sealed vacuum sealed bag so when when they're at the farmer's market and I present chicken breast or leg quarters and it looks just like you would get it at the grocery store it makes a difference well what so, it also does is the the quality of those Vacuum seals is second to none. And so when I go out and I buy this expensive food from you and I take some and I make it right away, but some I put in my deep freezer. When I open it up a month later and go to get out these you know beautiful chickens that I bought from you, um, I don't open it, don't pull it out of the refrigerator and that bag's all loose now and I got freezer burn and all. It, you know, it's the type of quality you get like when you buy. You buy like pork at a supermarket, and it has that really thick, heavy-duty seal, and it it doesn't fail on you. You know that's that's huge when you're selling to a customer because a customer can be happy when they leave, but you may not know they weren't happy after they left, and you don't ever get a chance to get them back. That's true. You have to do a, a good job from beginning to end, and. and Maintaining customer relations is is a huge part because, you know, it's not about price point. It's about them wanting to know where their food comes from. So you have to follow up. And fortunately, 
I've had people come back and be like, you know what? That chicken breast was a little tough, Raj. And I'm like, here you go. Here's another one. Try this. Because yeah. it happened. With, um, these birds are out in nature. I mean, they're scratching and pecking, and they they do receive some kind of injuries, and not it's not uh, a facility where everything is identical. So when something does come up, I do my best to kind of be like, hey, those eggs you got, they weren't happy. Here's another dozen. So you guys are doing eggs as well? We do have a small laying flock just because it's meat and eggs, mm -hmm. and that's a big hook at the farmer's market. People love to walk away with something, so eggs are a good one. And um, I try to upsell them to chicken. You know, I'm like, sure. hey, buy the chicken and you'll get the egg dozen eggs for free because I'm really not there to sell eggs. I would prefer to sell chicken or pork chops or something else that gets them coming back. Yeah, I think eggs are a good loss leader, or they're more like an add-on, or what we used to call in the sales industry, like your gas money clothes. Like, I went on the sales call, I wanted to sell this, you know, main item that I sell, and it wasn't happening, but I was able to take this lower ticket item, and at least my commission now covered my gas money to get there. I think that's kind of how you have to look at eggs. With duck eggs, we've been able to do fairly well, but it is... Without restaurants or high-end retail in your distribution channel, it's difficult because the people that want them are there, but there's only so many people that want duck eggs. And when you can get them into a restaurant and somebody's like, hey, you know, you're, you're already paying $22 for a burger. Would you like to add a dollar and put a duck egg on it? They're like, oh, yeah, because it's at the fancy schmancy place, and it must be good. Um, right. Or when they go into, like, a, a boutique farm-to-fork retail outlet, you know, duck eggs, I'm going to bring duck eggs home. But when you're you're just looking for people that specifically want them, then, you know, I, I think it's it, it can be done, and, and it's it's more profitable, but it takes a lot of dedication. As soon as we weren't on our sales channel all the time, it went from profit to loss. You know, and that's why we're much smaller now with ducks because we just don't have time to maintain the sales channel. Right. So, um, what are kind of your goals? Where do you want to go next with this? I think most importantly, it's it, we want to reach out to people in the community. We're working with someone now who's starting to lease out a few acres and planning on putting down for a fall garden or a small market garden. Um, we want to continue to have people come out to the farm. I mean, we have a several times a year we have open houses. I've got a little earthen pizza oven out out there. So people come over, they bring their own favorite pizza toppings, and we just kind of hang out, have a good time, tour the facility. So community outreach and finding more people like us doing things like this. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being. Oh, I got a question for you. I didn't ask, and I'm feeling stupid for not asking. Now, somebody, you know, Bobby down the road wants to re release your your facility for a day to process his chickens. What's the cost? Uh, it is case by case basis. Uh, how many chickens do you have? How long are you going to need to use the facility? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. But on average, it's about $100 a day, okay. and that allows you access to the knives and all the equipment and then whatever additional help you might need would be additional. Sure, sure, which is cool that you can do that because now I'm not processing for you. I'm hired help, you know. I right. think it's really people need to, like, 
One of the things I need to take away from you kind of ties back into our quote of the day for the show, uh, which is by Tony Robbins, and it's, there's always a way if you're committed. And there's so many things that people think they can't do, but it's our job to design around those restrictions, and it sounds like you guys have done a good job with that. So uh, with that, man, I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks a lot, Jack. Great interview with a great guy, and like I said, you know, it's, it's all about what can you do with what you have, and that anything's possible, anything can be accomplished if you're actually committed to it. So with that, let's go ahead and remind you guys, there's a couple ways you can help support this show. One, you can become a member of the Members Support Brigade. It's a program I set up way, way back, like I've been doing the show about a year Uh, when I set MSB up, and, and it's been a phenomenal success. And it's because even from the very beginning, when I only had a few vendors uh, that were supporting it, if you became a member and used the discounts, it paid for itself. And now with over 80 different discount vendors available to you in the MSB, it more than pays for itself. Uh, at 50 bucks a year, if you don't get your money back, it's only because you're not using the discounts. And, and most of you guys in the audience, in the United States market anyway, I'll, I'll say for those of you overseas, if you join MSB, it's more of a contribution because while some of the discounts apply, it's really U.S.-centric because that's where my market is. And if I can get discounters that ship overseas... I'll I'll do it, but if I get something that ships exclusively in Canada, it only serves like 3% of my market. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Not for me. It doesn't. It's not a problem for me. It's hard for me to get that vendor because it doesn't make a lot of sense for them. You know, that, that's, that's how the, the, the calculus works out there. But if you're in the United States, 50 bucks a year, if you become a member and you don't get that back, you're just not – you're buying stuff, I promise you. You're buying stuff you could be getting through there that you're paying more for. That, that's why you're not getting your money back. But at 25 bucks, it's stupid cheap. And right now, until the national lockdowns for COVID end, and I'm not sure how I handle this now, because the president has rolled out his phased, um, his phased withdrawal of, of the lockdown, but I don't really see it lifted yet. So I'm not sure exactly how long I am bound by my word to keep this stupid sales price up. But right now I don't feel right taking it down. So you could become a member right now, and I'm not sure for how much longer, for 25 bucks a year, and the discount code when you sign up is 25 bucks. If you don't want to sign up online using a credit card or whatever for any reason, just know you can subscribe by snail mail. You go to the, the, the website to sign up, click on members at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and you'll see a thing to pay by check or mail. and You can pay with silver and stuff like that. Uh, you should fill out the form and mail it in. And just know that goes to our receiver, our, our postage receiver, and we're only getting there like once a week or once every week and a half now with COVID. So if you do that, it might be a few days before you get set up. But as soon as we get your stuff, we'll set you up. But 25 bucks, and you get the discount code 25 bucks, and you get the membership for 25 bucks. Easy to remember, 25BUCKS. Next up, let me remind you, you can also help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there whenever you're going to shop online. No matter what you buy, you help support us. And today's write-up, I, I want you, if you don't normally check out the T-SPAS write-up of the day, I want you to check it out. You can just go to the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can see everything alphabetically uh, grouped by category that I've reviewed on the T-SPAS tab, or you can just go to tspaz.com. It'll take you right there. But if you just go to the main website and just scroll down below today's episode, you'll see... Uh, today's item of the day, and it's Frontier Organic Lemon Pepper, and it's just lemon pepper. I, I get it. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about it. Number one, it's Frontier Organic. 
there are, you know, when it comes to bulk spices and teas and stuff, there are a couple companies, um, and Frontier is one of them, that um, anything that you buy, you're going to be happy. And, and, and so I try to recommend uh, these companies. And the big three for that on Amazon anywhere, Frontier Organic, Davidson's, and they're mostly bulk teas, and Starwood's Botanicals. And if you are looking for something on Amazon and you're looking for a bulk seasoning, spice, tea, herb, etc. I'm going to tell you right now, if you buy from any of those three, again, they're Frontier, Organic, Davidson's, and Star West Botanicals. They're all organic, and I believe Davidson says some things that aren't organic, but they'll tell you one way or the other. Uh, Frontier and Star West are both all organic, and you're going to be happy with the quality. So it starts with that. Then it goes to, I don't believe in paying more for things that I don't have to pay more for. I just don't. I just think that's bad calculus. It's bad math. And it's little things like paying an extra $5 a pound or $10 a pound or even $20 a pound for herbs and seasonings that add up to a dollar here and 50 cents there and a dollar there and five bucks there. And doing that in a hundred different ways throughout your entire life that reduce the amount of money that you have and the amount of money that you save and the amount of prepping you can do and the quality of your life. It's, I don't care about this, it's only a dollar. I don't care about that, it's only two fifty. I don't care about that, it's only $20. Bucks. Um, I'm not a spendthrift. I'm not afraid to spend money. If I really want to do something, like I want to go out and have fun, when this is over anyway, and I'm going to go out and spend $150 bucks on a dinner for me and my wife, I'll do it. I'll do it. But one of the reasons I can do that is when I'm making a decision like, do I buy this little tiny crappy thing, three, two, three ounces of lemon pepper for 7 bucks? Or do I go buy a pound of it, the best quality I can get, for $18? And when you do the math on that, it works out to a buck sixteen an ounce is what it works out to. And most of the stuff you buy in the store works out to about 3 or $4 an ounce. It's not hard to figure out what to do. And as preppers, we take that and we put it in jars or containers or whatever and break it up into smaller portions and we store it in our pantry. So that, that's one part of this. But the other part of this is the organic thing. So organic to me is something that I like to have if I can't get local or grow it myself or wildcrafted. Like those are all things that go before organic. So if I'm buying a mass market product, which even though they're great, you know, Frontier Co-op is a mass market product, then I'm going to go organic if I can. But I also like I'm only going to spend so much for that premium. So I don't want to spend too much on an organic premium if it's not worth it. When it comes to Frontier uh, when it comes to Davidson's, when it comes to Star West, the, 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 the premium just isn't enough to ever turn me away. But then there are certain things beyond just the price that I don't want to buy a non-organic product of from the mass market. And anything that uses citrus zest falls into this category. And if you ever watch what it looks like when a citrus orchard gets sprayed with pesticides, you'll understand. And herbicide, you'll understand why. You'll see a guy dressed in a hazmat suit that looks like it's more than enough protection to protect him from a pandemic, with a giant blower spraying this god-awful crap all over the place. And as bad as that is, what you're spraying is the outside. So now we take this orange or this lemon or this lime for the zest, and we, we scrape off the, just the colored part. That's what zest is. Peel is the whole thing, the pith, the white part, the bitter part. Good zest, which is what's in this, is just the colored part. So now we have this pesticide-laden crap 
that we're concentrating into something like a zest. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Like that's a place I'm going organic. I'm not a health freak, but that's a place I'm going organic. So this product ticks all those boxes. But the reason I want you to read the write up today, I give you guys um, a recipe that I developed for the best lemon pepper herb chicken you'll ever have, and I did it kind of on a like I wonder if I can because lemon pepper chicken is like blah. It really is. It's like everybody makes it. It's okay. It's good. You know, there was a big joke on the show. Every everybody loves Raymond. Like Raymond's wife could make Deborah could make lemon pepper chicken, but it was like, and it was like the first meal she ever made for him when he, they were dating. And he was like, "Well, how she can cook?" And like, she's a terrible cook, but that's like the only thing she can make. So there's jokes made about it and all because it's so common. Uh, if you make my version, you will be like, "Where has this been my whole life?" Not only will you learn the recipe, you'll learn a procedure that you can use for marinades. That is fantastic. That involves making an emulsion with your marinades, so that your fat and your, your your other liquids actually marinate together instead of separately with your food. So this is like a great write-up. Even if you don't buy this particular brand of lemon pepper, even if you don't shop on T-Spans, T-Spas, read this one, and and make this recipe. And I'll tell you the best thing to make it with: uh, chicken thigh. Be- breast is good. But the thigh made with this recipe will flat blow you away. So if you're just buying skinless, boneless thigh, that's probably the better way to go than cooking with the skin on with this particular recipe. Though skin on would be okay. Um, what I do, usually I buy whole chickens or whole part, and I debone myself, and I use the skin, and I make crisp skins, uh, like little chicken pork rinds, and I use the bones to make stock. So I get more out of it that way. But, man, boneless, skinless chicken thigh made with this recipe, just follow the procedure exactly. And you will literally be like, where has this been? You will never eat a piece of chicken that has more flavor or has is a juicier piece of chicken than if you do it this way. I, I really mean that. And it's a complex recipe. Most of my recipes are three or four ingredients. This one's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, uh, fourteen ingredients plus the chicken. And a two part procedure. But it's easy once you know how to do it, and it's totally worth it. But check out, um, again, the Frontier Organic Lemon Pepper. Uh, you can find that at tspaz.com where you can find everything. And just remember, if you need bulk seasoning spices, herbs off Amazon, Frontier, uh, Star West Botanicals, and Davidson's, you will, you will never hate yourself for making one of those three choices. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Today's song is by Toby Keith, and it's called 35 Mile Per Hour Town. And uh, I've heard this song before, but I guess I never really listened to it, because when I listened to it this morning getting ready for the show, it, it kind of hit me in the point where it almost hurts your heart a little bit to think about some of the things that in, are in this song that are so true to the little hometown that my, my father's from and where I did a lot of my growing up in in central Pennsylvania. I have no doubt that Toby's talking about kind of like a West Texas town or something like that, that a lot of ways would be very different than the place that I grew up in central Pennsylvania. Having lived in Texas and Pennsylvania, there's a lot of difference, I can tell you that. But the core concepts in this song are so spot on to not only the place I grew up, but how it's changed, just like the place in this song's changed and not for the better. It starts out with the fact that he's home, I guess, and his mom locks the door to the house. And he, like, can't even understand why she would lock the door to the house. Because 
as he grew up there, no one ever locked a door to the house. And I can tell you, where I grew up, not only did nobody ever lock the door, the damn lock on the door was broken. You, there, you couldn't have locked the door, and nobody bothered to fix it. And, I mean, I know it works now because my dad fixed it years ago because he had to because, like, the story in this song, town changed. But when I was a kid, no one ever even thought about fixing it. And the reason was, well, company might come over, and they need to be able to let themselves in. And, no, I'm not kidding. There's another part of this song that I'm going to talk to my wife about it because I know it'll resonate with her because she's told this story to me and, and my grandkids many times. When she was a little girl, she says they used to go out and play, you know, in the woods or whatever, down the street from the house. And uh, you played until you wanted, you know, to, you, until you either wanted to come home or until it was time to come home. And the way that you knew it was time to come home is you never went so far that you couldn't see the front porch. And when the front porch light came on, By the way, she was also growing up in central Pennsylvania, about 40 miles away from where I grew up. It's kind of funny. Um, when that porch light came on, you, you got a couple minutes to get your butt home. And when the porch lights came on, all the kids ran home. And even though it's coming from a totally different place and a totally different perspective, that's in this song too. And there's so much like that in this song. The kids don't play touch football anymore. And Man, I... I look at this, and, and the concept is we can't blame the children for what they've become. We have to blame ourselves. And there's two sides to this for me. One, it hurts so much that there's so much truth in this. But the other side of it is, I know there's so many young people that are growing up, and they're growing up largely the way that we did and the way that our parents did. Because we're making it happen that way for them. There are certain things we can't do because society itself has changed. But we're creating as much you know, freedom and protection at the same time for them as possible. I look at this backyard that I have and the fact that my grandson can play out there. And I don't have to worry the neighbors are going to call the cops and say there's a kid outside by himself. And he's got all that adventure he can have back there with the animals and the trees, and, and he can go out and be a real kid. And if he has friends that come over, they can be real kids out there. And, I, you know, when we were doing Permethos up in West Virginia, seeing the way the kids were growing up there, it gave me hope that there are still some places like this. When I visited Ben Falk in, in the Mad River Valley of Vermont, people left their keys in their car. Not just unlocked, they left the keys in the car because somebody might need to move the car. Can we ever be a place where that's common again? I don't know. But I think if we stop trying, we're really giving up on what made this country as great as it was in the first place. It wasn't just because we could build more things and do more things. It's because, generally speaking, we looked out for each other. I think we need to start doing that again. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Jesus, a good thing your daddy ain't here to see this.
side Cause the streets ain't safe for a bike to ride down Since he printed a prowler in his 35 Said drive is 35 mile an hour.